Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Pipeline Superhero Podcast. Today, we're super excited to have Luke on. Luke is an author of multiple books, but what we're talking about today is a new book called Profit Streams, um, how software companies can maximize their profits. A lot of really interesting ideas in there, um, a lot of unconventional ideas as well that I'm sure our audience will you know, have a lot of interest in. So um, before we jump into anything else, Luke, tell us about the book. Well, when we think about software and we think about software solutions as opposed to IT, right? So there's the whole class of software that's internal to companies. Okay, great. We're not going to talk about that. We're going to talk about the fastest growing part of our economy is software sold and licensed in the outside world. And we have a lot of books out there about pricing and licensing stuff like pens and ceramic mugs or or menus in restaurants. And it, they're all boring and dull and written for boomers and by boomers and text heavy. And they don't actually talk about software. Software isn't a pen. It's not a ceramic mug. It's a very different thing. I, first, the most important thing right off the bat is, is when I've got a pen, I sell you a pen. When I have software, I license you the software which means there's a license agreement, which means there are compliance and laws associated with that license agreement. And there's a whole set of things that right off the bat are very different. So what our industry needed was the first book that was truly designed for companies who are creating and selling software-enabled solutions, which is inclusive of hardware because we're putting software into hardware at an increasingly fast pace. And we needed a mechanism to help price those solutions. Yeah, that makes sense. And I think that is a really interesting idea and is something that a lot of, a lot of digital ink is spilled towards by SaaS operators, founders, investors of how to properly price a product. I think it's both an art and a science. And I, you know, we talked before this, and that was one of the um, more interesting ideas in the book. So we'd love to hear, you know, the elevator pitch on uh, your unique ideas regarding pricing and software. Well, one of the things that go into this notion of the art and the science is first, you're correct. I, I'm glad you said it's both a bit of an art and it's a bit of a science. So let's start, let's start with the science part. The science part relates to right off the bat, well, what value am I providing? Is it a tangible value, like I'm saving time or I'm saving money and I can measure it? Or is it an intangible value, like the software is, is inducing a feeling of emotion in me? And for example, we buy games because they induce intangible emotions. We feel stressed when the monster is chasing us. And that's a software-enabled solution. Uh, I might buy a, a, a internet-enabled oven because now I can monitor my oven. And if I'm a, imagine you're a uh, high-end uh, restaurant and you had internet-enabled ovens where you could monitor their uh, maintenance schedules. Or and we're seeing this kind of creative use of software assets. So the first part about this is what we call a customer benefit analysis identifying the areas in which you provide benefit to your customers and then putting a number on them. What is the value of your brand? What is the value of those tangible and intangible assets? That's part of the science. Part of the art is making sure that you are actually capturing the full set of benefits that you provide. We were recently working with a, a software startup and we do a lot of work with uh, VCs and PE firms because 
they're ones who really do need to improve pricing and revenue. And they're, they they contact us and said, we've got a portfolio company and they're just not raising their prices. And I started talking with the founder and he said, well, he said, you know, Luke, I can't compete against Oracle on price because, you know, Oracle has so many more features than we do. I'm like, well, why do people buy from me? He's like, oh, one of the things we hear all the time is how much better we are to work with an Oracle and how we listen. I'm like, yes, that's an intangible piece of your value proposition. And you should be able to factor that into why people are buying from you. And that's part of the art. Once I have that intangible attribute identified, how much is it worth is part of that art of valuation. Mm -hmm. Definitely. And I I think about this a lot with um, clients that we work with on the bloom growth side, which is breadth versus depth. And there's sort of a sliding binary there where it's like, are you extremely good at one thing or do you encompass a lot of different features, use cases. So it's like, you know, the acuity of certain strengths versus the lack of weaknesses where it's, are you a one-stop shop? Or are you really the luxury item? And, you know, I think that that really comes down to a deep understanding of product and also something as ethereal as company values. Are you the type of company that wants to service as many people as possible? And are you going to orient your product, its pricing, et cetera, to fit that, or are you the type of company that wants to, you know, consolidate a certain type of expert? And you know, there's no wrong answer there, but it really, you know, companies need to look themselves in the mirror at an early stage to really figure that out. Yeah, and what you pointed out in terms of the values, right? There's a values are the things that we hold important to us and that that motivate behavior. One of the areas in which those values that you just brought up would be captured or expressed is in your pricing strategy. If you value getting out to the broadest part of the market, then you're going to take a penetration strategy. However, if you value, as you pointed out, like some people might value their unique expertise, et cetera, they might have a premium brand or a premium pricing strategy. And that again, lines up with, well, what is the value proposition? The other thing I want to bring up is that these this notion of providing value to your customer is a system itself. And we were working with a, a company that did uh, software for the trucking industry. And what we were able to show them was that when they started maximizing one feature in their software about fuel utilization, the software was becoming onerous to the driver. So the driver satisfaction of the truck driver was starting to decrease. And so what happens is, is, that, is, is that if you have one thing that you do really well, okay, great. You have the killer feature or the killer app. You're there, you're purpose-built, you're, you're just doing great. But as that app becomes more sophisticated, you get this system of benefits. And what you're looking for in a system of benefits is to make sure that as one benefit increases, it does not have a deleterious effect on other benefits to your customer and looking at the set of benefits that your customers are, are seeking. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That seems especially relevant as Netflix kicks off uh, people sharing accounts, but that, you know, <laughs> I guess that counts as software as well. It does. Well, Netflix is a software-enabled solution, and uh, we actually are working on a little blog post because we all know that they've, they're starting to uh, be um, more enforced. They've always reserved the right to prevent account sharing, but they haven't enforced it. And it's funny, in the book, there's an entire section on you're in license agreements because every technology that you're building, uh, Lucas is building a solution and he's using Bubble. Well, Bubble comes with a license. So that's your in license and your out license. And 
what happens is, is that between the in-license and the out-license, there's compliance. To what degree are you holding your customers in compliance with their license? Netflix chose to kind of look the other way when they knew account sharing was going on because it was part of their growth strategy. Well, now they're not choosing to look the other way and they're enforcing the the, the terms and the clauses of their agreements. I'm not here to make a moral judgment on, on right or wrong. And I know you're not either, It's it, but it is a point that, that this is part of the very unique thing that happens. Again, going back to a, a pen or a pair of glasses, I don't I don't have any control or monitoring of these glasses until I put software in them. And now I've got a license agreement and a, and a whole set of other things. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the Netflix um, example reminds me of this somewhat paradoxical expression that I've heard, which is there are no rules, but break them at your own peril, which means <laughs> there is, you know, always sort of an unspoken you know, frequency of these are the things you can do or you can't do. And innovation necessarily rubs against those rules. And when you rub against those rules, you might break rules that aren't stated, but are still not, you know, it's sort of ill-advised. So that's how I think about that. I think that's a great quote. I've never heard that one and it's really good. Yeah. Um, Yeah. So tell me more about the book. Like what was your aha moment when you realized that this is something that was, you know, could resonate well with people because, you know, from what I've been able to to see from your descriptions in the website, um, a lot of like, you know, uh, marketing modeling is always evolving and there's always a place for a new and better way to do things. I'm just curious what that moment was for you. Well, for me, I am a, I'm a classically trained deep engineer architect person. So I have a master's degree in computer science and I've been building software a little bit more weighted in the B2B space my entire career, but I've been building software, large scale transaction or large, large, you know, B2B software, big applications for quite a long time. And what I noticed initially was that the business model becomes baked into the architecture to the point where it's almost the hardest thing to change, right? We talk about like, oh, I wanna move from my one hosting provider to another. Well, that's pretty baked into your architecture, but you can move between hosting providers. But imagine that you're a SaaS company and you charge uh, customers, let's go with Netflix for, 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 for better or for worse. You're a SaaS company and you, you're charging on a monthly recurring revenue, which is time-based access. For this month, you're gonna, you're gonna pay this much money. Whether or not you watch Netflix, you're still paying for it. And you decided to change that to transactional where you're paying, you know, a a nickel a movie or a buck a movie. Imagine in your mind the amount of change that actually goes into that business model change. Your pricing, your licensing, your back end, your auditing, your revenue recognition, all of that changes. And so you start to see this in other ways. I'll give you an example. Google has been trying to create a alternative to Amazon Web Services and Azure in the cloud. But what's Google? What's Google's DNA? It's transactions, right? They sell ads and clicks to advertisers. Microsoft's DNA is what? It's yearly licenses. It's multi-term licenses. Well, what does a CIO want to buy? Do they want to look at every part of their business as transactions? Or do they want to look at their business as, I'm going to buy the software and I'm going to use it the way I want, maybe on a per seat basis. 
So you start to see like why YouTube was such a great acquisition for Google because it had the exact same, what we call value exchange model. Once I've got my value and I know what I'm going to charge for it, how do I trade money for value? That's the value exchange. And it turns out there's a relatively small number of atomic value exchange models in software. But the trick is, is if you get the wrong value exchange model, your business can't get to product market fit and it can't scale. And once you've got it, it's actually fairly resistant to change. So part of my motivation was realizing that these things are deeply embedded in architectures. And I started to see these patterns. And then my co-author, Jason, who is an expert in product management, he and I started to really talk about what, what I was seeing and what he was seeing. And we realized that's part of the aha moment that our industry needs to be able to talk about these things so that we can make better choices about pricing and licensing with our customers. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. And that reminds me of something that I've read recently and is is very popular, especially among B2B SaaS founders and operators, which is the idea from traction of the entrepreneur operating system, right? So it's just another way of conceptualizing what your company values are and how that informs your product, your way of selling. So it sounds very imperative, like this value exchange model. And we mentioned it earlier um, in the context of pricing and making sure that, you know, like the value that you provide is you're compensated for in the proper way. So curious if I am a SaaS operator, I'm listening to this, like, how can I model this out? Like what, what are the factors I should consider? And like, what's the medium that the output should really be in? Well, when you're trying to make these choices and someone like me says, look, you've got a design choice. So we're facing a design question, right? What should I choose relative to this um, uh, business model? The first thing is you got to know what your what your options are. And that's what we've done in the book. We've, we've laid out the seven different kinds of value exchange models that exist. And we talk about the pros and cons of each. And we talk about the places where they're more or less likely to be aligned with with what a customer needs. And we also talk about the technical implications of those value exchange models. Meaning if you're Stripe and you're doing transaction fees, your software architecture is going to have to have these kinds of capabilities. Um, Or if you're the the, um, San Diego National Computing Supercomputer, the National uh, Center for Supercomputing, and you're selling uh, access to the supercomputer by fractions of a of a minute, right? Or fractions of a second in terms of teraflops of computing. You have to figure out what you're actually selling of value to your customer. And so the book says, okay, you've done a benefit analysis. There's a small number of ways that you can trade money for value. Now let's start to look at if you were to choose a particular kind of value exchange model, how would that affect your customers? An example real quick um, is taxes are part of social policies of governments and taxes are chosen to influence social behavior. And again, I'm not trying to say what's right or wrong, but let's just talk about factually what happens. In many countries, the interest that you pay on your mortgage in a home is not deductible. Because the mortgage interest is not deductible from taxes you pay, you tend to buy smaller houses because you buy what you need. In the United States, mortgage interest is deductible from your taxes. So you've actually created an incentive for larger homes. 
So you when you're when you're making these design choices as a as a SaaS B2B entrepreneur, what you really want to think about is I know I'm providing value. How do I make more money? How might people steal from me back to Netflix? If I choose per user, people could share accounts. How do I stop that? Or do I want that? And then I start to look at what value exchange model will, will create a good value for my customer and enough revenue and profit for me to succeed. The good news is that that's a design space that we've mapped out in our book. So you can make those design choices. Yeah, I think about that stuff, especially in the context of the emergency, the emergence of companies like Vendor, which measures across big enterprises the use of products um, and making sure that those companies, you know, the 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 end customer are on the right side of their own value exchange, which is, you know, if I have 50 seats and it's across of a, you know, like of a certain software, call it a CRM. And there's split 25 sales folks that have 25 marketing folks and the sales folks, they log in every day because it's a little bit more in tune with their jobs. And the product feature is mapped to, you know, their pain points, their use cases. And maybe some of the product is built out for the marketing folks, but you find out that, you know, really those folks aren't using as much. So it's like customer product analytics. I think that's a really interesting shift and a really interesting idea because I think both, you know, both sides of the agreement need to be hyper-focused on those things. Like uh, from an agency standpoint, it's very, from an agency standpoint, it's very, you know, uh, straightforward to see if both parties are getting the value um, from the service. Uh, but with a product, there's that layer of abstraction where it, you know there is, you're engaging with the software. You're not necessarily engaging with the human every time you use it. So I find that really interesting. And I think that it's another thing that SaaS companies need to be hyper-focused on, especially B2B SaaS companies. There's obviously a big culture of that for B2C when it's an app and you measure every keystroke that a user may take. With B2B SaaS companies, there is, you know, Typically, you know, especially at the pre-series B stage, less of a focus or less of an infrastructure on product analytics. And I think that maps really well to, you know, everything that you've you've outlined with the value exchange model, which I think is really, really fascinating and something that um, you know, which is and this speaks to it, which is seems like a no-brainer, but I don't think that many uh, companies are doing it the way they should. Well, let's build on what you said, right? When you start talking about rounds of funding and where things are gone, you might start with a company with a with you choose your value exchange model, you build your product, and you produce it into the market. Typically, you're gonna want to start with relatively simple packaging because you're still new to the market, you're still emerging with your customers. And so what you kind of do is you kind of dump all your features and you know, here's my offering. A mistake that we see is people try to create segments or packages too quickly in B2B SaaS. They say, I'm going to have good, better, best, or I'm going to have different segments too quickly. And what you described is I've got this solution and I've got my salespeople using it one way and I've got my marketing people using it another. The better approach is to do exactly what you said the way you said. You said, get some data, look at some product telemetry and then start to go back to the market with packages that are tuned because you're going to start to see that as you add features and capabilities, you're going to be adding it to these more niche segments. So you 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 can start with the solution, use telemetry, and then you might find that the packaging, adjusting the packaging 
gives you the opportunity to adjust pricing. And we talk about that in the book in the in a section that we call applications. One of the things that uh, SaaS companies don't do is they don't revisit their packaging and they don't revisit their pricing on a uh, consistent cadence. So we we talk about like, oh, I'm going to roadmap or I'm going to release my product every month or every day or multiple times a day. And I'm going to look at my features. But what we find is what's the cadence of actually looking at your packaging and your pricing? If you're a fast growing SaaS company, you really should be looking at your packaging and your pricing about every six months because you've got new customers coming in. And what you start to find is exactly what you said. Well, these customers are kind of using the features these way, but never these features. Well, that by definition is a segment difference. Is there a way to get more profit out of the packaging tuning to those segment differences? Mm-hmm. And I think I find that customers generally are really receptive to that. They understand when they're working with a company that is a startup that is in its early phases, the product and the pricing are going to evolve. And, you know, when companies are growing as they should, when they're moving, you know, up and to the right, like that's how it should be. But um, I think, you know, we should get soon, we should be mindful of time and, and wrap it up soon. Yeah. This was really fun. Um, Lucas, uh, did you have any last questions there? No, it's just been really interesting hearing everything you said, Luke, today. And I'm really excited to go through the uh, free tool that you have on your website. Um, so if anybody wants to grab that, they should go. What's the best website they should go to? The best website is profit-streams.com. So www.profit-streams.com. And when Amazing. will the book be out? The book launches April 4th. Um, and uh, it, we're pretty excited. Uh, we've got uh, uh, quotes from people like Alexander Osterwalder, who's a, a fan of the book, Vern Harnish, if you know about scaling up and the work that he does with scaling growth companies. Yeah. Um, on the tech side, uh, there's a gentleman in the software industry who's well-known, Steve McConnell, who wrote some pretty famous books like Code Complete. So there's this really interesting groundswell of people saying, wow, this, this is something that we've needed and it collects the design space for pricing and licensing for software-specific attributes. And I'll, I'll say one final thing. It is a beautifully illustrated book. We were we we broke ground from traditional books because we were just tired of all the blah, blah, blah text. And yeah. so we actually hired a full-time professional illustrator and graphic artist and graphic designer to create a book that has got great content, but is illustrated in a way that allows it to be immediately That's incredible. Well, we're really excited to see it. And uh, thank you so much, Luke, for being on the show. Uh, Anybody who's been listening to the podcast so far, Luke has been able to grow his own SaaS products, but then also is writing writing a book about how to become profitable with your SaaS company, how to break the mold, how to not be like SaaS businesses that burn uh, cash for years before becoming profitable, how you can become profitable quickly, how you can pursue a model of profitability, and how you can be a standout in your industry, be the top business in your niche. So thank you so much, Luke, for being on the show. I'm thank excited you. to jump into your resources. I appreciate it. Thank you.